Resilience 2100, Tools for Navigating Change in the 21st Century. Don't, I'm going to swear, don't fuck up the planet, people, because the planet will survive. It's humans who will be gone. We have an opportunity to shift our own way of thinking and doing, and we're, I think we might be squandering that opportunity, and that's what I really worry about. You're listening to Resilience 2100. I'm your host, Steve Mottemeyer. Today's guest is Arietta Chacos. She's an inspiration to many in the Bay Area as she worked with her communities and neighborhoods and cities and the state to create more resilience throughout California for earthquake safety. Now she works on resilience issues nationally. I asked Arietta, how did you get started in this resilience thinking? I got very involved in civic life after the 1989 earthquake, the Loma Prieta earthquake here in the Bay Area. And that day, um, my daughter actually had just started kindergarten a month before. And, you know, it was a beautiful October day. We were running errands. And then all of a sudden, literally, the earth began to um, undulate (laughs) under my feet. I was on it standing on a, a concrete sidewalk and I could literally feel the waves through my feet and I was and I was just shocked I was shocked to my core um, and and so at that time I was uh, I worked as a book editor in the book business and um, I had a pretty good science background from college um, I always liked science and after this earthquake I became, after three days, I started asking questions of the school district here in Berkeley. And I was worried because I had, you know, cute little curly haired kindergartner. And I looked at the school building she was in, and it looked quite like the material looked like the material of the collapsed Cypress Freeway, i.e., concrete. I went to the school principal and I asked her, oh, you're ready for disasters, aren't you? And you have supplies and things, the staff is trained. And she looked at me and she started laughing and she said, come into my office. And I went into her office and she opened a desk drawer and pulled out a box of 500 Band-Aids. And she said, this is our disaster kit. After a day or two, after talking to the um, principal, I I called three people. I called our uh, school board president. I called a city council member who was in, interested in disaster readiness. And I called the head of the state seismic safety commission. And I asked them all the same question. I, I said, I think my daughter's school, which by law is supposed to be seismically safe, uh, it may not be safe. And if you were me and wondering about this, what would you do? And so each person gave me a list of about a dozen things to do, which I still have the list. And 
I think um, they thought, well, that'll do that. You know, this woman will go away. Um, but I so, but then I did a few other things. I started to talk to other parents in the school district, first at the school and then throughout the school district, saying, you know, I think we really need to address this and try to find out more about it. And by happenstance, the people um, in the superintendent's office, the associate superintendent, said, oh, well, we had some uh, engineering studies on these schools, and I'll just put you in touch with the engineers, and um, you can get this report. I don't have them here, but, you know, you can see that everything's fine. So he did. His name was Anton Younghair. I called the engineers, a man named Dan Shapiro and Harry Aquino. They were very prominent structural engineers, among the best in the Bay Area. And they were sort of reluctant to share the report from 10 years before. And so the superintendent's office called them and said, oh, no, she can read it. And so they sent me a copy of it. And the copy I received said that my daughter's school in particular had been assessed in 1979, 10 years before, and was found to be a collapse hazard. And no one apparently had ever read it. Nothing had ever been done. And the engineers were very nervous about me having this report. I took my findings and I, in my parent network that I had formed, or you know, this loose confederation of worried people, we had a structural engineer, a man named um, Andre Kustu. And he was a member of the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute based here in Oakland. And he said, I'll take a look at that report too. And he looked at the report and he also just blanched when he saw the findings. It's very rare for a structural engineer to write collapse hazard and school in the same sentence. Once I had Anders' letter, I, um, he wrote a letter saying to the superintendent and the school board, we have a, you know, this is a very significant problem. This school's not in compliance with state law, et cetera, et cetera. Because there were many laws passed in California, which I could recite for you at some later date. But I happened in my research, you know, having been a book editor, I, ha I was really lucky because I was working on a book project with a friend of mine who also was the editor at EERI, the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute. So she put me in touch with people there, and I also got in touch with a group called the Bay Area Earthquake Preparedness Project, BayRep, which was a sort of um, uh, landmark uh, public committee that worked on uh, disaster issues, risk mitigation, etc. And I learned through my colleagues in these groups that there was a little-known state law passed in California, the 1984 CATS Act, that said school district members, school board members in California were personally liable if they were found not to have addressed seismic safety issues and earthquake preparedness issues in their district. So armed with the report, the letter from the engineer, and the uh, state law, I went to every school board meeting for 18 months, and I would not let them forget about this. And, and so actually, after this earthquake happened in October, probably by January, I was appointed to chair a committee to look at uh, doing a new evaluation of all the Berkeley schools and 
to figure out how to deal with that. And so that launched me into public life. Before that, I mean, I didn't even know what a city manager was. I, I, you know, I didn't pay attention to politics. And so within a year, the school district had hired me to come in and work on safety issues. We found after six months in August of um, 1990, the engineers, same engineers came back and said that um, half of the Berkeley schools were seismically unsafe and should be closed. And that was, I can't, I think it happened on August 5th, 1990, and I was just elated that people paid attention to this. And to the credit of the school board and the city council, they really did. You're listening to Resilience 2100. Today's guest is Arietta Chacos. She's talking about how her career in resilience has emerged over time and the need for diversity in leadership if we are to thrive into the future. I was propelled into a whole different trajectory. I became the school district's sort of uh, legislative and policy person. I was sent to Washington, Sacramento. Um, after a year, I started going to all the meetings of the state allocation board in Sacramento, which was chaired by a civil engineer, Senator Leroy Green, um, who was the most irascible, um, autocratic uh, legislator in Sacramento, an intelligent man and an ethical man, but not very nice. And I kept hounding them. Senator Green said, we're going to make these changes in public policy and we're going to be working on seismic safety, but you have to vow and sign a letter to me that you will never come to another state allocation board meeting again. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Did you sign it? I signed it. I, and I said under protest. <laughs> Why didn't people say, well, we can't afford it, and earthquakes don't happen often enough? Well, here's my sense of that. Um, I like to say that school safety and the protection of children are gateway activities to risk mitigation. And as it happened, all of Berkeley schools were more than 40 or 50 years old at the time. We had been involved in Berkeley in a long-term um, investment in social change and to the exclusion of the care of infrastructure and schools in particular. Um, and so there were some naysayers and, and in 1991, in October, two years after the Loma Prieta earthquake, we had a devastating urban wildland fire in the Berkeley, Oakland Hills. It was the largest urban fire in the United States to that point. It was the largest dollar amount in urban uh, fires in the U.S., $3 billion in housing losses alone. And the incidence of that happening two years after the earthquake really ignited, no pun intended, the populace in Berkeley. And we had built, again, unwittingly, a sort of cohort of interested parties, stakeholders. After that fire hit, we formed a campaign committee to go to the voters for a $158 million bond measure, and we passed, I think, we're at 72%. Wow. 
I was just, for some reason, something just came to my mind. I read a book in the last year by a guy named um, Kim Stanley Robinson, a science fiction person, writer who lives in Davis, California. He wrote this book a few years ago, 2312. And it's an incredible book about how humans build out the solar system, et cetera. It's really neat. It's well written and it's infused with art and um, uh, music and performance art that, you know, that is here in our world. Uh, sculpture, uh, Andy Goldsworthy's mentioned, Miriam Abramovich, and, uh, you know, just a plethora of um, amazing um, Bach, Beethoven, all sorts of classical music. And the, the, the um, I don't think I have the whole point of the book, but one of the points I got is that Earth, we had destroyed, kind of wrecked Earth, and Earth was like this kind of, you know, trash can planet, while the rest of the solar system was all built out. But then at the end, the protagonists in the book uh, are sort of rebellious, intellectual bohemians, and they reanimate the Earth through this weird planet formation thing that we've done out in the rest of the universe in the solar system but they come back to earth and reanimate earth and it's a beautiful book and so when i think about where will we be in a few hundred years i want to think about that book as a sort of visionary benchmark that we should think about number one don't i'm going to swear don't fuck up the planet people mm -hmm. because the planet will survive it's humans who will be gone. And we have an opportunity to shift our own way of thinking and doing. And we're, I think we might be squandering that opportunity. And that's what I really worry about. So I don't know. I don't know where that came from. No, it's beautiful. If we don't want to squander it. We don't then what needs to happen in the next two decades? Well, I think that the political planes are shifting. The, the, the plates that hold together, you know, the first world nations are moving. And I, I sort of hold out some maybe silly optimism, maybe unfounded optimism, that as we have a more diverse, younger leadership coming up from nations not in the first world, that we will start to make a bigger dent in what we have to do. I do feel that we don't have somehow the political spark among us to, to get this going. And maybe I'm just looking from a very, you know, middle-class American perspective. And I, I try to see what's going on elsewhere so I can start to feel hope in the coming generations. And um, one, I mean, I, I just think that there is so much technical expertise among, you know, young people these days that we have the ability to change this. We have the ability to, you know, move the trajectory that we're on, shift the trajectory. Part of what we have to do, each of us, is to look at what, how we take care of ourselves, how we keep heart, how we keep strong enough to fight for our communities or the good that we have to do in the world. And 
that's you know it's not an easy thing it's just it's not easy i look at you know young people in their 20s and 30s and they're just trying the hardest they can to make a living and 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 that sometimes to the exclusion of political engagement and maybe the way we engage politically will have to change so if someone's hearing you talk about that how do they become effective like you became i mean what's what's the difference what's it take for me, it was finding allies. And, you know, I have to say that when I started my work many years ago, I was, um, you know, just flailing about I really didn't know anything about organizing or anything. But I did realize that I had to have other people who believed in what I believed in. And that made a big difference to me. And it really sustained me. I mean, many of the people who I worked with in that original group again laugh at you know are you still doing that stuff um but you know it was because of them and their strength that i got going so maybe there are ways of of getting people to realize that they're not alone in the work and that we all do have to sort of work together on this i, I it seems very trite it seems very banal but i can't i just can't underestimate the importance of political and social and just great allies in one's life. You've been listening to Resilience 2100. I'm your host, Steve Mottemeyer. Today's guest was Arietta Chacos. She's an advisor to the Association of Bay Area Governments, FEMA, Region 9, and the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities. To hear additional episodes of Resilience 2100, visit our website at www.resilience2100.com or check in with your favorite local podcast provider. Thank you and see you next time.